Section 31 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Pyle. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11. Section 31. Selected Works by Thomas de Quincey. Levana and Our Ladies of Sorrow. From Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Oftentimes at Oxford I saw Levana in my dreams. I knew her by her Roman symbols. Who is Levana? Reader, that do not pretend to have leisure for very much scholarship, you will not be angry with me for telling you. Levana was the Roman goddess that performed for the newborn infant the earliest office of ennobling kindness, typical by its mode of that grandeur which belongs to man everywhere, and of that benignity, in powers invisible, which even in pagan worlds sometimes descends to sustain it. At the very moment of birth, just as the infant tasted for the first time the atmosphere of our troubled planet, it was laid on the ground. That might bear different interpretations. But immediately, lest so grand a creature should grovel there for more than one instant, either the paternal hand as proxy for the goddess Levana or some near kinsman, as proxy for the father, raised it upright, bade it look erect as the king of all this world, and presented its forehead to the stars, saying, perhaps in his heart, Behold what is greater than yourselves. This symbolic act represented the function of Levana, and that mysterious lady, who never revealed her face except to me in dreams, has always acted by delegation, had her name from the Latin verb, as still it is in the Italian verb, Leware, to raise aloft. This is the explanation of Levana, and hence it has arisen that some people have understood by Levana the tutelary power that controls the education of the nursery. She that would not suffer at his birth even a prefigurative or mimic degradation for her awful ward, far less could be supposed to suffer the real degradation attaching to the non-development of his powers. She therefore watches over human education. Therefore it is that Levana often communes with the powers that shake man's heart. Therefore it is that she dotes upon grief. These ladies, said I softly to myself, on seeing the ministers with whom Levana was conversing, these are the sorrows, and they are three in number, as the graces are three, who dress man's life with beauty. The parkai are three, who weave the dark heiress of man's life in their mysterious loom always with colors sad in part sometimes angry with tragic crimson and black. The Furies are three, who visit with retributions, called from the other side of the grave, offenses that walk upon this. And once even the Muses were but three, who fit the harp, the trumpet, or the lute, to the great burdens of man's impassioned creations. These are the sorrows, all three of whom I know, the last words I say now, but in Oxford I said, one of whom I know, and the others too surely I shall know, for already in my fervent youth I saw, dimly relieved upon the dark background of my dreams, the imperfect lineaments of the awful sisters. These sisters, by what name shall we call them? If I say simply the sorrows, there will be a chance of mistaking the term. It might be understood of individual sorrow, separate cases of sorrow. Whereas I want a term expressing the mighty abstractions that incarnate themselves in all individual sufferings of man's heart. And I wish to have these abstractions presented as impersonations, 
that is as clothed with human attributes of life, and with functions pointing to flesh. Let us call them, therefore, Our Ladies of Sorrow. The eldest of the three is named Mater Lacrimarum, Our Lady of Tears. She it is that night and day raves and moans, calling for vanished faces. She stood in Rama, where a voice was heard of lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. She it was that stood in Bethlehem on the night when Herod's sword swept its nurseries of innocence, and the little feet were stiffened forever, which heard at times as they tottered along floors overhead, woke pulses of love in household hearts that were not unmarked in heaven. Her eyes are sweet and subtle, wild and sleepy by turns, oftentimes rising to the clouds, oftentimes challenging the heavens. She wears a diadem round her head, and I knew by childish memories that she could go abroad upon the winds when she heard that sobbing of litanies or the thundering of organs, and when she beheld the mustering of summer clouds. This sister, the elder, it is that carries keys more than papal at her girdle, which open every cottage and every palace. She, to my knowledge, sate all last summer by the bedside of the blind beggar, him that so often and so gladly I talked with, whose pious daughter, eight years old, with the sunny countenance, resisted the temptations of play and village mirth to travel all day long, on dusty roads with her afflicted father. For this did God send her a great reward. In the springtime of the year, and whilst yet her own spring was budding, he recalled her to himself. But her blind father mourns forever over her. Still he dreams at midnight that the little guiding hand is locked within his own, and still he wakens to a darkness that is now within a second and deeper darkness. This Mater Lacrimarum also has been sitting all this winter of 1844 to 1845 within the bedchamber of the Tsar, bringing before his eyes a daughter, not less pious, that vanished to God not less suddenly, and left behind her a darkness not less profound. By the power of her keys it is that Our Lady of Tears glides, a ghostly intruder, into the chambers of sleepless men, sleepless women, sleepless children, from Ganges to the Nile, from Nile to Mississippi, and her, because she is the firstborn of her house, and has the widest empire, let us honor with the title of Madonna. The second sister is called Mater Suspiriorum, Our Lady of Sighs. She never scales the clouds, nor walks abroad upon the winds. She wears no diadem. And her eyes, if they were ever seen, would be neither sweet nor subtle. No man could read their story. They would be found filled with perishing dreams and with wrecks of forgotten delirium. But she raises not her eyes. Her head, on which sits a dilapidated turban, droops forever, forever fastens on the dust. She weeps not. She groans not. But she sighs inaudibly at intervals. Her sister Madonna is oftentimes stormy and frantic, raging in the highest against heaven, and demanding back her darlings. But Our Lady of Sighs never clamors, never defies, dreams not of rebellious aspirations. She is humble to abjectness. Hers is the meekness that belongs to the hopeless. Murmur she may, but it is in her sleep. Whisper she may, but it is to herself in the twilight. 
mutter she does at times but in the solitary places that are desolate as she is desolate in ruined cities and when the sun has gone down to his rest his sister is the visitor of the pariah of the jew of the bondsman to the oar in the mediterranean galleys of the english criminal in norfolk island blotted out from the books of remembrance in sweet far-off england of the baffled penitent reverting his eyes forever upon a solitary grave which to him seems the altar overthrown of some past and bloody sacrifice on which altar no oblations can now be availing whether towards pardon that he might implore or towards reparation that he might attempt every slave that at noonday looks up to the tropical sun with timid reproach as he points with one hand to the earth our general mother but for him a stepmother as he points with the other hand to the bible our general teacher but against him sealed and sequestered every woman sitting in darkness without love to shelter her head or hope to illumine her solitude because the heaven-born instincts kindling in her nature germs of holy affections which god implanted in her womanly bosom having been stifled by social necessities now burns suddenly to waste like sepulchral lamps among the ancients every nun defrauded of her unreturning maytime by wicked kinsmen whom god will judge every captive in every dungeon all that are betrayed and all that are rejected outcast by traditionary law and children of hereditary disgrace all these walk with our lady of sighs she also carries a key but she needs it little for her kingdom is chiefly amongst the tents of the shim and the houseless vagrant of every clime yet in the very highest ranks of man she finds chapels of her own and even in glorious england there are some that to the world carry their heads as proudly as the reindeer who yet secretly have received her mark upon their foreheads but the third sister who is also the youngest hush whisper whilst we talk of her her kingdom is not large or else no flesh should live but within that kingdom all power is hers her head turreted like that of sybil rises almost beyond the reach of sight she droops not and her eyes rising so high might be hidden by distance but being what they are they cannot be hidden through the treble veil of crape which she wears the fierce light of a blazing misery that rests not for matins or for vespers for noon of day or noon of night for ebbing or for flowing tide may be read from the very ground she is the defier of god she also is the mother of lunacies and the suggestress of suicides deep lie the roots of her power but narrow is the nation that she rules for she can approach only those in whom a profound nature has been upheaved by central convulsions and whom the heart trembles and the brain rocks under conspiracies of tempest from without and tempest from within madonna moves with uncertain steps fast or slow but still with tragic grace our lady of sighs creeps timidly and stealthily but this youngest sister moves with incalculable motions bounding and with a tiger's leaps she carries no key for though coming rarely amongst men she storms all doors at which she is permitted to enter at all and her name is mater tenebrarum our lady of darkness 
These were the Simni Thei, of sublime goddesses. These were the Eumenides, or gracious ladies, so called by antiquity and shuddering propitiation of my Oxford dreams. Madonna spoke. She spoke by her mysterious hand. Touching my head, she beckoned to Our Lady of Sighs, and what she spoke translated out of the signs which, except in dreams, no man reads, was this. Lo, here is he whom in childhood I dedicated to my altars. This is he that once I made my darling. Him I led astray, him I beguiled. And from heaven I stole away his young heart to mine. Through me did he become idolatrous. And through me it was, by languishing desires, that he worshipped the worm and prayed to the wormy grave. Holy was the grave to him. Lovely was its darkness, saintly its corruption. Him, this young idolater, I have seasoned for thee, dear gentle sister of sighs. Do thou take him now to thy heart, and season him for our dreadful sister, and thou. Turning to the Mater Tenebrarum, she said, Wicked sister, that tempest and hatest, do thou take him from her. See that thy scepter lie heavy on his head. Suffer not woman and her tenderness to sit near him in his darkness. Banish the frailties of hope. Wither the relenting of love, scorch the fountains of tears. Curse him as only thou canst curse. So shall he be accomplished in this furnace. So shall he see the things that ought not to be seen, sights that are abominable and secrets that are unutterable. So shall he read elder truths, sad truths, grand truths, fearful truths. So shall he rise again before he dies. And so shall our commission be accomplished, which from God we had, to plague his heart, until he had unfolded the capacities of his spirit. Savannah Lamar, from Confessions of an English Opium Eater God smote Savannah Lamar, and in one night by earthquake removed her, with all her towers standing and population sleeping, from the steadfast foundations of the shore to the coral floors of ocean. And God said, Pompeii did I bury, and conceal for men through seventeen centuries. This city I will bury, but not conceal. She shall be a monument to men of my mysterious anger, set an azure light through generations to come, for I will enshrine her in a crystal dome of my tropic seas. This city, therefore, like a mighty galleon with all her apparel mounted, streamers flying, and tackling perfect, seems floating around the noiseless depths of ocean, and oftentimes in glassy calms through the translucid atmosphere of water that now stretches like an air-woven awning above the silent encampment. Mariners from every clime look down into her courts and terraces, count her gates, and number the spires of her churches. She is one ample cemetery, and has been for many a year, but in the mighty calms that brood for weeks over tropic latitudes. She fascinates the eye with a Fata Morgana revelation as of human life still subsisting, in submarine asylums sacred from the storms that torment our upper air. Thither, lured by the loveliness of cerulean depths, by the peace of human dwellings privileged from molestation, by the gleam of marble altars sleeping in everlasting sanctity, Oftentimes in dreams did I and the dark interpreter cleave the watery veil that divided us from her streets. We looked into the belfries, where the pendulous bells were waiting in vain for the summons, which should awaken their marriage peals. 
Together we touched the mighty organ keys that sang no jubilates for the ear of heaven, that sang no requiems for the ear of human sorrow. Together we searched the silent nurseries where the children were all asleep and had been asleep through five generations. They are waiting for the heavenly dawn, whispered the interpreter to himself. And when that comes, the bells and the organs will utter a jubilate repeated by the echoes of paradise. Then turning to me, he said, This is sad, this is piteous, but less would not have sufficed for the purpose of God. Look here. Put into a Roman clepsydra one hundred drops of water. Let these run out as the sands in an hourglass, every drop measuring the hundredth part of a second, so that each shall represent but the three hundred and sixty thousandth part of an hour. Now count the drops as they race along, and when the fiftieth of the hundred is passing, behold, forty-nine are not, because already they have perished, and fifty are not, because they are yet to come. You see, therefore, how narrow, how incalculably narrow, is the true and actual present. Of that time which we call the present, hardly a hundredth part but belongs either to a past which has fled, or to a future which is still on the wing. It has perished, or it is not born. It was, or it is not. Yet even this approximation to the truth is infinitely false. For again, subdivide that solitary drop, which only was found to represent the present, into a lower series of similar fractions, and the actual present, which you now arrest, measures now but the thirty-sixth millionth of an hour. And so by infinite declensions, the true and very present, in which only we live and enjoy, will vanish into a moat of a moat, distinguishable only by a heavenly vision. Therefore the present, which only man possesses, offers less capacity for his footing than the slenderest film that ever spider twisted from her womb. Therefore also, even this incalculable shadow from the narrowest pencil of moonlight is more transitory than geometry can measure or thought of angel can overtake. The time which is contracts into a mathematical point, and even that point perishes a thousand times before we can utter its birth. All is finite in the present, and even that finite is infinite in its velocity of flight towards death. But in God there is nothing finite but in God there is nothing transitory, but in God there can be nothing that tends to death. Therefore it follows that for God there can be no present. The future is the present of God, and to the future it is that he sacrifices the human present. Therefore it is that he works by earthquake. Therefore it is that he works by grief. O oh, deep is the plowing of earthquake! O oh, deep! And his voice swelled like a sanctus rising from the choir of a cathedral. Oh, deep is the ploughing of grief! But oftentimes less would not suffice for the agriculture of God. Upon a night of earthquake he builds a thousand years of pleasant habitations for man. Upon the sorrow of an infant he raises oftentimes from human intellects glorious vintages that could not else have been. Less than these fierce ploughshares would not have stirred the stubborn soil. The one is needed for earth, our planet. For earth itself is the dwelling-place of man, but the other is needed yet oftener for God's mightiest instrument. Yes, and he looks solemnly at myself, is needed for the mysterious children of the earth. The Bishop of Beauvais and Joan of Arc from Miscellaneous Essays Bishop of Beauvais, thy victim died in fire upon a scaffold, thou upon a down bed. But for the departing minutes of life, 
both are oftentimes alike. At the farewell crisis, when the gates of death are opening and flesh is resting from its struggles, oftentimes the tortured and torturer have the same truce from carnal torment. Both sink together into sleep. Together both sometimes kindle into dreams. When the mortal mists were gathering fast upon you two, bishop and shepherd girl, when the pavilions of life were closing up their shadowy curtains about you, let us try through the gigantic glooms to decipher the flying features of your separate visions. The shepherd girl that had delivered France, she from her dungeon, she from her baiting at the stake, she from her duel with fire, as she entered her last dream, saw Dome Remy, saw the fountain of Dome Remy, saw the pomp of forest in which her childhood had wandered. That Easter festival, which man had denied to her languishing heart, that resurrection of springtime which the darkness of dungeons had intercepted from her, hungering after the glorious liberty of forests, were by God given back into her hands as jewels that had been stolen from her by robbers. With those, perhaps, for the minutes of dreams can stretch into ages, was given back to her by God the bliss of childhood, by special privilege, for her might be created in this farewell dream a second childhood, innocent as the first, but not like that sad with the gloom of a fearful mission in the rear. The mission had now been fulfilled. The storm was weathered. The skirts, even of that mighty storm, were drawing off. The blood that she was to reckon for had been exacted. The tears that she was to shed in secret had been paid to the last. The hatred to herself and all eyes had been faced steadily, had been suffered, had been survived. Bishop of Beauvais, because the guilt-burdened man is in dreams haunted and waylaid by the most frightful of his crimes, and because upon that fluctuating mirror, rising from the fins of death, most of all are reflected the sweet countenances which the man has laid in ruins. Therefore I know, Bishop, that you also, entering your final dream, saw Dome Remy, that fountain of which the witnesses spoke so much, showed itself to your eyes in pure morning dews, but neither dews nor the holy dawn could cleanse away the bright spots of innocent blood upon its surface. By the fountain, Bishop, you saw a woman seated, that hid her face, but as you draw near, the woman raises her wasted features. Would Dom Remy know them again for the features of her child? Ah, but you know them, Bishop, well. Oh, mercy, what a groan was that which the servants, waiting outside the bishop's dream at his bedside, heard from his laboring heart, as at this moment he turned away from the fountain and the woman, seeking rest in the forest afar off, yet not so to escape the woman, whom once again he must behold before he dies. In the forest to which he prays for pity will he find a respite. What a tumult, what a gathering of feet is there! In glades, where only wild deer should run, armies and nations are assembling, Towering in the fluctuating crowd are phantoms that belong to departed hours. There is the great English prince, regent of France. There is my lord of Winchester, the princely cardinal that died and made no sign. There is the bishop of Beauvais, clinging to the shelter of thickets. What building is that which hands so rapid are raising? Is it a martyr's scaffold? Will they burn the child of Dom Remy a second time? No, it is a tribunal that rises to the clouds, and two nations stand around it. 
waiting for a trial. Shall my lord of Beauvais sit upon the judgment seat, and again number the hours for the innocents? Ah, no, he is the prisoner at the bar. Already all is waiting. The mighty audience is gathered. The court are hurrying to their seats. The witnesses are arrayed. The trumpets are sounding. The judge is taking his place. Oh, but this is sudden. My lord, have you no counsel? Counsel have I none, in heaven above or on earth beneath. Counselor there is none now that would take a brief from me. All are silent. Is it indeed come to this? Alas, the time is short. The tumult is wondrous. The crowd stretches away into infinity. But yet I will search in it for somebody to take your brief. I know of somebody that will be your counsel. Who is this that cometh from Domremy? Who is she in bloody coronation robes? From Roms. Who is she that cometh with blackened flesh from walking the furnaces of Rouen? There is she, the shepherd girl, counsellor that had none for herself, whom I choose, Bishop, for yours. She it is, I engage, that shall take my lord's brief. She it is, Bishop, that would plead for you. Yes, Bishop. She, when heaven and earth are silent. End of section 31. Recording by Chris Pyle.